Welcome to Mission Now, a series of the Mission Matters podcast here at St. Louis University. Mission Now is a monthly conversation featuring Father David Sawalski, the Vice President of Mission, and Dr. Amber Johnson, the Interim Vice President of the Division of Diversity and Innovative Community Engagement. Each month, these two engage lively dialogue around current campus events, their relevance and impact from the perspective of their respective offices, and the ways in which those events invite all of us in the SLU community to live the mission here and now. I am Virginia Herbers, the Director of Mission Formation, and I am pleased to bring you this special series from the Office of Mission and Identity. Thank you for joining us for this new series in the Mission Matters podcast. Today is the first episode of Mission Now, a monthly conversation with Father David Sawalski and Dr. Amber Johnson addressing what is happening in the SLU community now and how the offices of Mission and Identity, respectively for Father Sawalski, and the Division of Diversity and Innovative Community Engagement for Dr. Johnson, how the two offices see the importance of dialoguing surrounding that particular issue. So today we are going to talk a little bit about the importance of being able to engage meaningful conversation when we don't necessarily agree. How do you see that playing out on campus right now, specifically with respect to your two offices? So take it away. Well, I'll start with a framing moment. I think a lot of people see conflict and difficult conversations as a point of tension, as a problem. And I think a different way to think about it is a point of possibility, right? A departure point. And I think we get to that by going back to grade school. I don't know if you remember some of your first really difficult math lessons, but for me, it was the lowest common denominator, right? How do we do fractions? Well, you got to find the lowest common denominator. And that stuck with me into adulthood. If you can find the point where you merge, where you have... Um, meaningful shared understanding. You can go anywhere. So if you if you start with the tension, then it is a problem. But if you start with the easy points, with the with the commonalities, it becomes much easier to move forward and, and craft a path for change that folks can agree with. So I just want to couch this in that moment of possibility where you have a black, queer, non-binary, interim vice president and a white cisgendered non-queer vice president who actually agree on a lot of things. Yes, we do. I want to also do a little framing here too, but it's obviously related to our topic. St. Ignatius in the spiritual exercises writes directions to the director of the person who's making the retreat. And one of the instructions is to presume the good of the retreatant, that whatever the dynamics are of the heart and of the soul uh, could be kind of odd sounding perhaps, and and maybe unconventional in some ways. And of course he's a 16th century person, so there are very clear (laughs) ways of doing things back then. So this instruction back in the exercises is actually really kind of innovative that presuming the good of the other person as the starting point for your conversation between the retreatant and the director is actually essential for that retreatant to go forward for those 30 days. And I think we've kind of, even at SLU, have forgotten that 
every person that we encounter thinks they're doing the right thing and that what they really want to do when they share their views or their opinions is to have someone hear them and actually have that person presume that they are of goodwill, that they are not motivated by something that's ugly or that's terrible. And if you use that as our starting point, then it becomes very difficult to vilify people. And it becomes much easier for opposing viewpoints to come together in the same room and find that common ground like Amber was talking about. The presumption of good intention. Absolutely. One of my favorite exercises that I used to conduct in the classroom starts with the question, how do you know you're right? What we find over time, and it takes the entire class period, so 75 minutes. It takes about 75 minutes to get here. But what you'll hear is students from lots of varied perceptions, perspectives, positions, using the exact same language. So if you take somebody who is very, very much couched in you know, social justice and the Jesuit mission and these values that are very much mission-driven here, and then someone who might be polar opposite, they're going to say similar things like, I just want my people to be happy. I just want folks to be able to exist in certain kinds of ways. Once you hear this language and you start to hear how people use this language to defend their positions, you start to see you are actually saying the same thing, but representing very different sides of a spectrum. And so eventually what we get down to is you don't know that you're right. And when you can admit that you don't know that you're right, it opens up a space of vulnerability to say, maybe I have more to learn. Absolutely true. I think uh, one of the reasons we were talking about this particular topic was because of our experiences in the last semester as the semester came to an end. And we just had a couple of experiences as a university community when it was clear that people were talking past one another or making huge assumptions about the stances of the motives and motivations of those who are saying things or doing things they didn't agree with. And instead of dialogue or having that moment in which we realize that those passions are, uh, are different, but they're passionate anyway, um, we kind of came to an impasse. And that, that impasse has not ended yet. There, there's still things that need to be addressed here at the university. And it really does come down to how do we as a university allow ourselves to be vulnerable to other positions that we may have already decided we don't agree with? How do we have enough respect for the other person that we will take the time to listen? And can we do that without feeling threatened? Everybody wants free expression on campus, but too many people and a growing number of people want that to be limited because they're afraid or they feel threatened by those things that might be said out loud. And that's a real challenge. Where do you find the, the balance in that? There are some limits here. I mean, St. Louis University is a voluntary association, right? Nobody is compelled to be here. Nobody's compelled to stay here. And the university does have policies and practices that will limit speech, for example, if it's considered to be a hate speech or if it's a threatening speech. You don't you have the right to say whatever you want here. There are some limits. And I think one of the biggest limits of freedom of speech is our skewed understanding of it. 
there's there are a lot of competing definitions of what freedom of speech actually means. Freedom of speech does not mean you're absolved of the consequences of your speech, right? Every speech act, every single utterance has consequences, good, bad, and neutral, every single one. And when you choose to speak, when you choose to, to engage in a speech act, you are still held accountable to what that thing does, right? Because when we speak things, we are speaking realities, we are speaking entities, we're speaking identities and feelings and experiences into existence. So we have to be held accountable to what we speak into existence, right? So when you speak hate, there are real consequences for that hate. When you politicize a global pandemic, there are real consequences for that speech act. And so what we have to understand is that to speak within the laws of the First Amendment does not mean there are no consequences for your speech acts. It just means that the government cannot put you in jail, right? Unless you say something that is a direct and obvious threat, right? And so that's one part of it, right? How do we define this thing called freedom of speech and how do we hold people accountable to what they say when they try to use this amendment as, as absolution? The other part of that is, I think that we have a tendency to vilify people who disagree with us. And so I often will use the example, if your grandma, who you love dearly, let's pretend you love your grandma, I hope you do. If your grandma votes for a candidate that you think is the worst person in the world, are you gonna walk up to your grandma and punch her in the face? Absolutely not. Well, why? Because you love your grandma, but you also understand that your, your grandma was born in a time and place that might justify her feelings and her beliefs and you know that if you talk with your grandma and you try to find that lowest common denominator, you might be able to get to a place of mutual agreement where you can grow and learn together. But we do not extend that type of grace and compassion to strangers. When people who are strangers disagree with us, we just think you are evil. You're a bad person. And we don't take the time to think, well, what types of conditions and, and experiences and circumstances did you grow up in that fostered these beliefs in you? And if we could extend that type of grace and compassion to strangers, we would live in a very, very different society. Yeah. We'd be in relationship. We would be in relationship. If I put on my historian hat for a minute, it, it's also just kind of the confusions that are out there, right? Especially on a university campus because a professor who's earned his or her tenure, for example, uh, has academic freedom and that is meant to permit even the development or discussion of difficult ideas without consequence. Now, the consequences might come from the failure to sell your book, for example, but it's not gonna be a consequence that's gonna come from the provost office. We also talk about the right of free speech, but actually constitutionally, what that amendment means is that we're protected from the government's interference in our speech. And it's not necessarily true that you have the right of free speech wherever you are. Corporations and fast food restaurants and schools and private entities can say what you cannot say or what you cannot do. And again, getting back to what I said before, the university's had 200 years of developing kind of its idea of what's appropriate or not appropriate on campus. And we've got some pretty sophisticated ways of bringing speakers on and, and permitting uh, dissenting views to be expressed out loud within a setting that is meant to be an opportunity for learning and deepening of understanding. 
okay, which is what a university should be doing. I was thinking about an experience when I was at the university before that a group, and I don't know who it was, thought it'd be really great to invite the former governor of Colorado to St. Louis U. And I said his name was Dick Lamb. And after he finished being governor, he had presidential aspirations. And one of his main ideas, pretty bad idea from my perspective, was to ration medical care to the elderly. He basically would say out loud, you know, you reach a certain point in your life where you can't really return back anything to society. So why should we be spending all of this money on your medical care? So this is early 2000s, right? It certainly would not be uh, something that the Catholic Church would support. And it's uh, from womb to tomb kind of theology and understanding of the human person. So this was thought to be going to be pretty controversial. And then they realized that perhaps there were going to be a lot of people who would come, who would be opposed to him, who might be supportive of him, who might come. And so we needed to schedule him in a much larger place than they had originally scheduled. And so they scheduled him to speak at College Church in the upper church. And at the time, I was director of museums, and I was a direct report to the president. And I happened to go in and was hearing all of this. And I just looked at the then chief of staff, and I said, does anybody think it's really a good idea to have these positions given voice to in the sanctuary of the college church? And the clock stopped, and the clouds stopped rolling across the sky, and everybody <laughs> just kind of went, oh, no. No one. Eventually, it just got to the point where no one thought it was a good idea for him to be on campus and he never got here. But, you know, there are places where certain speech is permitted and certain speech is expected not to be shared as well. Right. And, and I think we also have to be real clear. We have very good definitions of discriminatory language, inflammatory language, hate speech, bias. Those things were never created to incite dialogue. They were never created, to go back to that word, to, to foster relationships, right? They're the exact opposite of dialogue and relationships. And so if we're being really clear about where we are as an institution and how we treat each other, our policies say very clearly that we do not tolerate that type of inflammatory language. And so when we think about recent events, and how people have tried to skew these speakers who have been invited here, who do engage in inflammatory speech. When people try to skew us saying we don't tolerate nor condone that as being anti-Catholic, I, I really want to, to ask them like, when's the last time you picked up our mission statement or looked at our free speech policy or just engaged Catholic social teaching? I am not Catholic. I have never been Catholic, but I, I grew up in a house full of love and a house that really valued people. And I grew up in a house that said, learn everything you can about everything in the world because it makes you better prepared to deal with people who are different. And so in doing so, I came to a Catholic school. I am a SLU alum. I'm a legacy student. Both my parents graduated from SLU. They actually met and fell in love here. So SLU is responsible for my birth. Huh. I learned stuff as an undergrad about Catholic social teaching that stayed with me. Um, and I know for a fact that there is nothing in Catholic social teaching that says, let's use inflammatory speech to create relationships. And so one of my favorite things to return to is the apostolic preferences, because I think that they're real clear, they're really short, they're really simple. And I think that it helps us 
sort of navigate what it means to be in relationship with people we don't understand, right? So this idea of discernment is so important, right? Can you discern these arguments and see them for what they actually are, right? To cause division and to be inflammatory. This idea of walking with the poor and the outcasts of the world and those whose dignity has been violated, that's a direct call to be with people who are marginalized and vulnerable, not to say y'all people are bad. This idea of reconciliation and justice, which is a part of our mission, apologize, prevent harm, and repair harm. Like these things, they might have come out of religious rhetoric and religious institutions, but these are universal principles for just being a good person, right? Can you accompany young people for a hope-filled future? That means thinking about the beauty in the world, thinking about the good, the positive, and not always thinking about the things that are wrong, because there, there will always be something wrong but there will also always be something beautiful, right? And so this idea of collaborating and care for our common home, right? So our, our environment and, and, and the spaces that we live and inhabit, but also the ways we create energy and cultivate culture. These four preferences just make sense. They make sense for how to be a decent person. And so when we take these, these ideas and spin them in order to justify our wicked ideas, we have a really deep problem. Of course, the other apostolic uh, preferences is uh, the spiritual exercises. And there's a great meditation at the very beginning of the exercises of the Trinity looking upon the world, the world that God created, right? And Ignatius wants you to use your imagination. And, and he goes, goes through this thing. And he says, from the perspective of the Trinity looking down upon the world, and he says, what is it they see? They see people being mean to one another. I'm not using his exact language and being violent. And what is it that they hear? And they hear the cursing and the condemnations and all of that sort of thing. And see the relationships that are basically broken. That it's not how the world was supposed to be. That was not the imagination of God in creating the world was to see this hateful, disrupted kind of place that we had made it. And so... I really think Ignatius wanted the retreat and to think about it a little bit and actually kind of come to, the, to a conclusion, which was, well, they should just go. Maybe they should just start over. Yeah. And instead, the decision is to send the Son of God to the world in order to lead us all back to this notion that we are in relationship not only with God, but with one another, that we should be able to see the image and likeness of God in the faces of everyone we meet, so that it becomes impossible for us to push them to the side, to make them marginal, to say it's your fault that you're poor or undereducated or whatever it is. Because the whole message of Jesus coming to the world is a message of reconciliation and repair. And those of us who profess to be Christian, if we're not doing that, then I'm not sure what kind of Christianity is going on here. I can tell you what kind is going on. It's the kind that is self-serving. It's the kind that justifies our behaviors from a very limited perspective instead of really thinking about what it means to be Christ-like. It's hard to be Christ-like. It's hard. And it comes with a price tag. It comes it's with costly. a price tag. It is costly, right? So I, my, my team under DICE is consistently sending me text messages and emails and saying our, our quote, I have some feedback for you. And saying like, thank you for being such a fierce advocate and going to the bat. And I always respond with, it's my pleasure. But it, tucked inside that pleasure is some really long and hard labor. It is hard to think about 
how to advocate and then to go out and do it, right? It's a two-part process. And then to have to wait for somebody to say, eh, yeah, I guess what you're advocating for is important, right? To tell you whether or not what you think is important is important. And so it's, it is really difficult to be empathetic and compassionate and caring, especially when you don't agree with someone. But again, if we can take a step back and say, let's not vilify those we disagree with, but rather find that lowest common denominator, things shift. Um, and, I, and I think that at any institution of higher education, that's what we are asked to do. That's what we are charged with doing. When you are responsible for creating knowledge, so epistemic justice, when it's your job to create knowledge from your research and your, your, your walk in this world, that's a heavy responsibility. And it's, it's, a, it's a responsibility that cannot be subjected to, to, to inflammatory speech, to bias, to discrimination, to hate, because we're literally mapping the future of the world with our actions. Right? That's a huge responsibility. Our decisions, our choices, our words, our actions, our behaviors aren't just one moment in time. They create a person, they create a character, they create a community, they create a culture. Yes. I think the other thing that maybe we could talk a little bit about is that SLU is not an island. We don't have walls around um, the campus to protect us from all of the things that we don't want to hear, we don't want to see. And so these ideas, some of which are really great and life-giving and others that are difficult and maybe should, should not endure, will still be found on, on our campus. And one of the concerns about this notion of expression, especially within the university environment, is how so, too many people, so many people I should say, feel threatened by these opposing views. And, are in some cases advocating for even stricter policies about expression on campus. And of course, in my mind, the question is kind of fundamental to what we've been talking about here. How do you yourself hear things, even that are difficult, that don't also make you feel imperiled or threatened or limited in some way so that your life isn't unduly or unfairly impacted? I just... I think we all will encounter persons and will encounter viewpoints that we just fundamentally disagree with and may find absolutely abhorrent. But ultimately, Dave Sawalski is responsible for how I react to that and how I carry that. And will it become burdensome and somehow turn inward in a way that becomes negative? Or can I hear it, you know, disagree with it? advocate for what I believe is the right way of doing things and continue on with life without being debilitated by that. And I, and I think that right now seems to be really hard for people that as Amber said, when it is said out loud, it takes on a power obviously, but how much of that power will actually impact you negatively. And that's your only response to make sure that doesn't happen is that that other person can't say what that other person wants to say. And I think a lot of it too is this notion that power is somehow finite. And there are people who feel like if those with opposing viewpoints are able to express those viewpoints, it somehow might result in your loss of power. And that's not true. Power is like energy. It's, it's just there. I think that there is a benefit to losing power sometimes. So when you find yourself in a situation where you don't have power and you're forced to be an active listener, that is a great moment of growth. Right, again, back to this idea of what's possible. 
And so that if you're always the loudest voice in the room, when do you have the opportunity to learn and listen? I have a friend, Gidid. Gidid is from um, Oslo, Norway. And she studies blasphemy. She's a chaplain. So she's a very, very religious person. And what she studies is how people walk away from religion in order to find their faith and be renewed and strengthened in their faith. So we know from, from biblical rhetoric, right, to, to study other religions could be considered blasphemous in some religions or to, to partake in activities, whatever. And what she's looking at is how when people choose to listen to other viewpoints and absorb them and really sit with them, if and when they decide to return to their faith, it is so much stronger and so much more important and valuable to them. And so learning about how other people live is not in fact a threat to your existence. It actually is what makes your existence more beautiful, more possible, and just overall potentially better. And if I can say that as somebody who has lived the vast majority of my life in very marginalized spaces with very little power, if I'm not afraid to give up what little power I have to learn how other people live, I don't think anybody should be afraid. Well, I think that's what's going on right now, right? So as the uh, representative white guy in this discussion, I think much of what's going on in our larger society today is this notion of the people who've had the power are somehow going to lose the power or are losing power. And I've never subscribed to that, uh, obviously, by virtue of what I do with my life, for one. I mean, you don't take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience in order to become rich, for one. But the, the thing is, is that it's zero-sum game thinking that if somebody wins, then I will automatically lose. Yep. Instead of this idea that our culture, our nation, has in its history, which is blighted in many ways, has clearly demonstrated that when you invite more and more people to participate, the nation gets stronger, it gets wealthier, and it gets more innovative, and it gets more prosperous. It's just, it's just a given throughout our history. We see that as more and more people are invited to be included. And I'm not diminishing the struggle that it took to get that invitation stamped and in the mail. But nonetheless, it's this zero-sum game that if X, Y, Z people are winning, then I am clearly losing. Mm -hmm. When the reality is, is that in most cases, the losses are coming because of your failure, to embrace the opportunities that are before you. Yep. But that requires accountability. It requires vulnerability and it requires transparency. And those are three, three words that are not very popular in the English lexicon in this country. True enough. And loss of control, <laughs> loss of power and loss of control sometimes go hand in hand to be unwilling to allow for what might happen when you don't know what that's going to be is a very threatening space. Yep. William Allen White years ago wrote an essay. He was a newspaper publisher, wrote an essay called What's the Matter with Kansas? But then about 10 or so years ago, somebody followed up with that using the title. And, and the idea was this guy was exploring why people were supporting politically positions that actively hurt them. Mm. I, to, to, just as an example, let's say in Kentucky, they've had a governor who's adamant about not going into Obamacare and expanding Medicaid. 
and he was reelected overwhelmingly, right? By people who would have directly benefited by having ready access to medical coverage. And, and so it's kind of that deal. It's, if you're not thinking, reflecting, and then asking yourself, how is this good for all of us, not just a couple of us, then things aren't going to work out so well. And it might not work out so well for me, but you don't see a lot of evidence of that right now in our country. And I, I also wonder if people do that because they are single issue voters who aren't looking at the entire candidate, right? Or looking at the entire bill or the entire whatever. Most of folks in this country who vote, vote for a party or a single issue. And I, I often wonder how do we fix that? Because it, it doesn't make sense. And to, just to bring it back home, you know, we started off talking about the, the world and the issues of SLU. But of course, they're the same as the, the world and the issues of our nation and of our globe, of our people. And so if we can harness some of the good faith and the presumption of good intention and the desire for relationship here in the world of SLU, it will be something for the greater good. It will be something for a higher purpose. And so I think there's something to that as well, that the issues we're talking about here aren't limited to us. And yet they are of vital importance for the health of our own community. I just don't want to leave a misimpression here. Um, none of this requires a university education, right? You don't have to be the oh. most sophisticated person on the planet in order to do these things. I mean, to be a respectful listener, to allow someone else the dignity of their own position, even if you disagree with that. I mean, these are, these are just values that have, are longstanding. I mean, we all know people are elders who have not had the opportunities that we have had, who are exceptionally good people. And they demonstrate that by their love and care and concern for others. And maybe it's sometimes they hear things they don't want to hear, but they're not going to lash out at you. They will just overlook it. Talk about a, an elderly Jesuit brother when I was uh, teaching at St. Louis U High, Brother Thornton. And uh, Throcky was a man of his own interests. And one of his things was whenever uh, he heard something that kind of he didn't want to hear or didn't want to do, he just would pretend like he couldn't hear it. That's great. Handy. That's awful, but it's great. <laughs> and we used to just call it uh, Throcky selective uh, listening, selective hearing, you know? It's like, oh, brother, wouldn't it be great if we did X and then it never would happen? <laughs> when I teach intercultural communication, so when we are talking to people from different cultures, we talk about selective perception, selective attention, and selective exposure. We don't talk about selective listening, but... <laughs> We have a tendency as humans to see what we want to see, expose ourselves to, to what confirms our own biases, and, and, and pay attention when it benefits us. So yeah, selective listening goes right on in there with it. Like, I didn't hear that. It's very controversial, but I have, I have learned throughout my life, you have to pick your battles, and you have to decide what is important for you to fight. And if I am spending the majority of my time keeping people alive... I'm not going to be as concerned about someone's hate speech. Like I, there are other people who are dealing with those things and that's important, but 
I can choose to listen to things that affirm my body, my values, my position in this world. I can choose to listen to things that do not dismiss who I am as a person. And I can choose to avoid those things that do not. And, and I have the right, just as much as someone has the right to say what they want, I have the right to not listen, right? To not allow that to enter my psyche. And so sometimes I think when you were a new activist and when you are new to this thing, it is easier to fight against bad positions based on your perceptions or terrible rhetoric or, or inflammatory speech because it's easy to cite and it doesn't require as much tangible, physical showing up. But when you are showing up to house the unhoused, to volunteer, to take folks into quarantine housing who've been exposed to COVID and tested positive, when you are out in the streets picking up people who are literally freezing, you know, when you are fighting for people's lives who are continually beaten and killed by state-sanctioned violence, when you do those things, you don't have time to be concerned about what some person is saying on Twitter, right? And so what battles are we choosing and what types of tangible outcomes are we wanting to craft? Because our energy, our individual energy is finite. There is a point at, at the end of every day or the beginning of every day where you say, I can't do this anymore. It is time to rest. So when you know that your energy is finite, what are you fighting for when you're choosing to tap into that energy? And how is it depleting you? And if you're being honest with yourself, if you have time to fight the Twitter trolls, then you're probably not doing the other part right. Couldn't agree with that more. I think we just need all of us, say as a university community, but as a society, just need to understand, or at least try to understand what type of pressure we've been under, especially in these past two years with the pandemic. That, and I've said this oftentimes, the, the gas tanks are empty. There's not a lot of resilience in, in our community right now. The anxieties are there, uh, and it's just kind of hard to get through the regular sort of things. And then when you add some sort of outburst or, or a speaker on campus, and it just rubs every nerve raw, and maybe in a different time, you would have been able to just let that go, just let it wash over you and just go on down the Mississippi sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And many of us don't have the capacity to do that right now. And so part of how, as a community, that we should be looking out for one another is to give one another permission to do, as Amber is suggesting, step back, decide not to, to respond to that. There's nothing obligating you to respond to that. Know that that person is maybe totally misguided, but you may not be the one to fix that and just get on taking care of yourself and get on with your day sort of thing. And I think if we were able to do that a little bit more, maybe the temperatures would come down a little bit more as well, because we're very reactive right now in our society. And there are people who are past masters at pushing the buttons. And they're looking for the reaction, the clicks, the views, however you want to do this, in order to kind of keep everybody in an agitation, a state of agitation. And, it, and how do you take away their power? Don't get agitated. Don't pay attention. Don't let them get under your skin. There are always going to be people like that out there in the world. You don't have to be with them. That takes a level of maturity. And I'm not talking about age, right? I'm not talking about years. I'm talking about experiences. It takes a level of maturity to know just how effective that is. 
And, and I think, again, when we go back to young activists, I was once a young activist and I, you come into consciousness and you learn all these things and your immediate response is, why didn't the people before me fix it? And then your second response is, well, because they were doing it wrong. I'm going to do it right. And then we repeat the exact same things that they did. And what we finally realize when we mature in this activist role, in this advocate role, in this leadership role, what we realize is these systems are so ubiquitous and so strong and so good at taking care of themselves. It takes more than one person to dismantle them. And until we can start to collaborate and create these sort of communal pockets of folks who are really willing to do that work of dismantling these systems, nothing that any individual will do will ever be enough. And so again, there's a moment I have to say, I have to rest and I have to learn, right? History is so important. There's this beautiful Adinkra symbol and phrase in Ghana Sankofa. And it means, you know, moving forward while reaching back, right? Reach back and fetch it. And it's saying that you must bring your history with you if you want to, to, to change the trajectory of your future. If you don't understand history, you will inevitably repeat it because we're humans, right? There are certain things that just feel intrinsic to us. And, you know, and so when you see things like not your mama's social movement or you know, not your grandma's civil rights, movement, yes, it is. And I am literally resting on the shoulders of every activist, every leader, every advocate before me, learning from everything they did so I can try to do this in community and have even more of, a, of results. But so many young people, again, who sometimes end up being a little immature, think that in a very naive way, if I do better than them, I, I can fix this. Good luck. My first protest and entrance into activism was in, I was 10 years old, 1990, Rodney King. And I, I was in dance class. And I, I've always been terrified of earthquakes. I grew up in Los Angeles. So, you know, they, there was always this notion that the big one was coming. And so I'm in dance class and the, the, the dance teacher turns off the music and she tells us everybody needs to go home immediately. You know, we have to call all your parents to come get you. You got to go home. And I'm like, there's going to be an earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, what happened was much worse than an earthquake. Right. So my mom, we lived like maybe five, 10 blocks from the dance studio. So my mom came, she got me, we went home and she explained to us what happened that Rodney King was, was brutally beaten. That happened some months before the verdict came down. None of the police officers were charged. People are rioting. Buildings were on fire blocks from my house. Um, so we had to stay in the house for some days. And that was my first understanding of the world is literally on fire in pockets, right? And so that might've been happening in Los Angeles in the early nineties, but you got pockets in other countries, other spaces, other places, other, st other states, other cities. And the world has never stopped being on fire from the moment I learned that, right? Because once you learn that, you become more sensitive to all the other pockets of fire. And so if you do the math, that was 30 years ago. I've learned a lot in 30 years about activism, not just through being an activist, but through my research and through my own advocacy. And I love it when young folks come just to listen and learn and say, you know, what has happened and how have you accomplished what you've accomplished? That gives me hope that things are different. And, and I do I do want to say, because I don't want this to end on a note where we're, we're vilifying our students for wanting to make a difference and not necessarily going about in ways that we think are appropriate. But I am I am inspired by a lot of our young activists here on campus because they have shown that they're willing to listen and they have shown good faith 
And, and I'm talking about students from multiple spectrums, not just the ones who agree with what I think is right, but students in groups that might not agree with anything I have to say. I have seen them open their ears, their hearts, their minds and say, I wanna learn. I wanna learn why and how. And then I wanna use that to move, to move my agenda forward. And so I do have hope in, in Gen, what is this, Gen Z? Because they're doing a lot of things differently. They are questioning before just reacting and, and they are listening before reacting and they are being proactive in a lot of ways. But we do have a long way to go when we think about recent activities and how much people avoid difficult dialogue and talking with people who are different. Yeah, I was asked a question the other day about uh, what I thought about the, the youngins, the current generation of students. And I, I have to say, I, my response was very simple. I said, I think they've been unfairly labeled, yeah. that they are not totally absorbed into social media. They are not somehow less motivated, less capable, less interested in the world than previous generations. They are not particularly passive. They are very, in some ways, very disciplined about what they've decided to do and how to accomplish it. And when I look about our campus and, you know, we are a privileged place, right? The students are quite talented and are achieving quite a bit and come from backgrounds that aren't particularly vulnerable. That's most, but not certainly all of them. But they really do believe that they can take what they've been given, what they've learned, what they've reflected upon, and take it out into the world and make a difference. And it's that kind of, that confidence that gives me great encouragement, great consolation, that SLU is one of those places where things, good things are happening. And that when we have our hiccups, we can find good things to come as a consequence of those hiccups because of who we are as, as this learning community. So I guess to kind of close the circle, we, we kind of began about expression and that sort of thing. I, I do believe that we will continue to be challenged by different views, obviously, and that people will be saying things that I don't particularly agree with. But I always have believed that it's part and parcel of the Jesuit charism. If you're going to find God in all things, then the all part is a big element of that. It's not find God in some things. Right. It's certainly not finding God in only those things that I agree with and support. So if we are going to follow in the tradition of Jesuit education and kind of look for God in all things, well, sometimes that place might be that person and those words that we may not find any great comfort in, in being around or being with. But just as they aren't condemned by God, then, then we don't take on that power ourselves either, right? So let us use this moment to interrogate ourselves our beliefs, our positions, but also how God shows up in us. However you conceptualize that from the spiritual realm, from the religious realm, from the environment, right? How, how do these divine energies show up in you and how can you locate them in others? Because there's nothing about individual reaction is going to change our society. Nothing. Presume the good. Presume the good and stay in relationship. You can see each other as grandmas, <laughs> grandmas and grandpas to one another. So what a wonderful way to start the series, talking about what's happening in the mission now by speaking about the importance of dialogue. 
and bringing unity into being through diversity and allowing diversity to make our unity sparkle. So I want to thank both of you, Amber and David. Thank you for being with us. And we look forward to whatever will be the topic for next time. Thank you again for being with us. Thanks, Virginia. Boom. Um.